Welcome to a special episode of Hemphit and Health. My name is Chiselle Hernandez, and I am one of the writers and producers of the podcast. Today, we have a special lecture-style episode where we'll hear the old Chicano professor talk about the cycles of nativism in the United States, from the Civil War to the rioters that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. Join us as we discuss the state of Latinos and as we unearth the voices of our gente and health. Hello. January 6, 2021. That will be a day that lives in infamy. It just happened to be the day of the epiphany, and I believe many of us had an epiphany on that day about the nativist movements that have erupted in this country every so often. And in fact, I want to talk about them because this most recent nativist movement uh, was not the first. And in fact, it fit a very typical pattern and a very typical timing. So what are nativist movements? Way back at the beginning, before there was the United States, there had been a lot of uh, people that had come over from Norway, Sweden, England, Germany, Denmark, etc. They called themselves Northern people, Nordics, and sometimes Anglo-Saxons. When the U.S. was being formed, there were a, quite a number of folks who felt that the government and the country they were forming was actually, they felt, a direct descendant of the Germanic tribes. This fell in with sort of the uh, myth-making of nations that took place during the 18th, 19th century as nations began to define themselves independently of kings and queens. And they tended to all have this myth that a nation was inhabited by a single ethnic group that had a common origin. They shared a common culture and a, share, a common language. For the people in the what was to become the United States, they felt that the form of government that was the best was developed in the German forests by German tribes, and they were going to now use it to build this new country. And they had what we would call today a white Anglo-Saxonist orientation. There were other people that were not white and Anglo-Saxon. There were Indians, there were Africans, there were the descendants of Indians and Africans, but they didn't come from that Germanic tradition. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was a great proponent of the white Anglo-Saxonist myth. There were two Viking pirates of about the year 1100 that he was very enamored of. Their names were Hengist and Horsa. And Thomas Jefferson wrote that not only were the people in the Northeast United States descended from Hengist and Horsa's folks, he actually wanted them on the great seal of the United States rather than the eagle clutching the arrows and everything else that we have. He was voted down, but there remained this idea that the white Anglo-Saxon folks and their descendants were the legitimate inheritors of the German tradition. They were the ones who were going to rule this new United States. So they got, as white people, uh, the vote, and they got full services and protections of the United States. Those who are outside that pale, who are Indians or Africans, and their descendants were not allowed the vote, and they did not get full access to the services and benefits of the United States. Their access was very constrained. Well, in 1810, Mexico declared independence. And in the Declaration of Independence from Spain, Father Hidalgo addressed these issues very differently. First of all, he said, everyone in Mexico was going to be a citizen of the Republic of Mexico. There was no racial disqualification or qualification. You're in Mexico, you're a citizen, period. Secondly, uh, he also announced the abolition of slavery. And indeed, uh, he gave the slave owners 10 days to free the slaves or he was going to put the owners in jail. This is very, very different. 
Also, by the way, he continued the Iberian legal tradition that married women had property rights independent of their husband. A married woman could buy and sell property without having to ask her husband's permission. So this was the Mexican constitution. And California, along with the rest of the Southwest, was part of Mexico at that time. So those were the constitutional values that people here in California, here in Los Angeles, grew up with. Now, along comes the United States and basically through the war, conquers the northern half of Mexico. But the incoming U.S. Constitution was very different from the Mexican Constitution in that the U.S. Constitution at that point, this would be 1848, denied citizenship to non-whites, Indians, Africans, and their descendants. Slavery was perfectly legal. And when a woman married, she lost all legal standing. That is literally, from a legal perspective, she ceased to exist. Her husband would make all legal decisions for her. Well, Latinos were not happy with that idea. And they thought, well, we've been here in California for a couple, three or four generations. Um, we're now part of the United States. We need to fix things. So Latinos went to the California Constitutional Convention in 1849, and they raised their voices. And lo and behold, the California Constitution was very different from any other state. The California Constitution, to begin with, was written in two languages, in English and Spanish. And Spanish was an official language of California as part of the United States. Secondly. California continued Mexico's abolition of slavery. Thirdly, California continued Mexico's willingness to allow non-whites to be citizens so that non-whites here could become citizens. And in fact, Pio de Jesus Pico, who was an Afro-Mexican, who was the last Mexican governor of California, voted. He was a citizen. If he had ever traveled to Missouri, he would have been property because of his African origin. And married women had property rights. So in many ways, California came in with a constitution that was very different from the rest of the country. You could say very progressive. So Latinos said, okay, this is not going to be so bad here now as part of the United States, but enter the white Anglo-Saxonist nativists. Just five years later, there was an uprising of the, it's called the Know Nothing Party. It was a white Anglo-Saxonist nativist party that wanted to strip uh, Latinos and immigrants of their citizenship, strip Catholics of their citizenship, stop all immigration into the United States. And they were, by the way, very okay with slavery. That was the American Know Nothing Party. It was called Know Nothing because it was a secret political party that if people were asked, what party? Do you belong to this party? They actually called themselves the uh, Native American Party. Uh, natives, that, that nativism, okay. They were supposed to say, oh, I don't know nothing. This was a secret. But it was very virulently anti-Latino. And the American Know Nothing Party swept the elections in the 1855 and 1856 elections. They took almost every office in the state of California. And Latinos were at war and Latinos fought against it, but Latino votes were outnumbered at that point because you'd had the gold rush. But what happened is after the Know Nothing Party took the all the offices, in about three years, it completely crashed because they were so interested in beating up on non-white folks, they forgot they needed to govern. Like at some point, a government has to pave the streets, pick up the garbage, do all that mundane stuff that we have governments for. And they crashed and burned and fell into the American Civil War. When the slave states or who probably have been the most nativist of any, decided to leave the United States and form their own country in which their constitution would make slavery mandatory. There would be no such thing as a free state. 
that only whites would have citizenship. Non-whites simply would never, ever be able to be citizens. And of course, they believed in elitist plantation rule. That led to the American Civil War, which is basically a group of nativists saying, well, we're not going to agree with your idea of freedom and equality. We're going to create our own country. They lost. They lost big. 750,000 people died as a result of that. And then you had a period of reconstruction where African-Americans were given the vote, uh, provided schooling and everything else. You had the uh, 13th Amendment that outlawed slavery, the 14th and 15th Amendment that gave citizenship and full participation to African-Americans. But 20 years after the American Know Nothing Party, you had the rise of a new nativist movement that called an end to Reconstruction. And here in California, we were part of that. We had this person by the name of Dennis Kearney who had his political nativist group called the, uh, the Working Man's Party swell up the elections on the platform to kick all the Chinese out of California, make it illegal basically to be Chinese and breathe in California, stripped Indians of their citizenship, stripped the state of its bilinguality, and of course allowed the Ku Klux Klan to come into California. So we had, Latinos had to push back against that. 20 years later in the 1890s, there was a new nativist party called the American Protective Association. And they were quasi-secret. They were an association. And they were protecting America. And what were they protecting America from? From immigrants, from Catholics. Does this sound familiar? And they swept the elections in the 1894-95 elections, just swept across the country. And within two years, their complete movement had collapsed because, again, they forgot to govern. And eventually, people want the streets paved and the garbage picked up. 20 years later, about 1915, you had the uh, second rise of the Ku Klux Klan across the United States, including here in California. That's when the Jim Crow laws hit here in California. Racial segregation suddenly. Uh, marriage between the races was illegal. Uh, if you were Black or Mexican or Asian, you couldn't go to the White Beach. You couldn't buy a house in a white area, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you get this pattern of what happens every 20 years. In the 1930s, we had the Great Depression. And here in California, there's nativist movements all around. But here in California, these nativist movements have tended to focus on Latinos. And the notion was, well, look at all these Mexicans. They're taking their jobs from Americans, in spite of the fact that some of these so-called Mexicans had been here already for about seven or eight generations. If we just deport all these illegals, we'll have jobs for everybody. And so they deported. About one out of every three Latinos living in California was deported, including many, many, many U.S. citizens. In the 1950s, we had Operation Wetback. In the 1970s, we had English only. In the 1990s, some of you may remember, we had Proposition 187. And Proposition 187, in theory, was only about undocumented immigrants. But in reality, basically, if you were Latino, unless you could prove otherwise, they would consider that you were an undocumented. And that was written into the initiative that teachers, for example, had to report students whose parents they thought would be illegal. So guess who would be turned in? Usually Latino students. That was followed quickly by uh, another proposition that got rid of affirmative action and another one that got rid of bilingual education. So the nativists, once again, swept everything in California. Pete Wilson got reelected. But this time, the demographics were a little bit different. No longer were Latinos a small minority. And basically, it woke up the Latino vote. Latinos organized. And today, there is not one single Republican elected to a statewide office. The nativist movement basically has lost because, again, it could not do its basic governing. 20 years to the day, almost, after Prop 187, Donald Trump came down the elevator in Trump Tower, 
announced his candidacy for presidency by labeling all Mexicans as illegal immigrants who are rapists, criminals, and narcos. And that was his platform, basically, build the wall. He won. Actually, he didn't win. He lost the election by about 4 million votes. But because the way the slave states had gerrymandered the Electoral College to maintain Southern power, he actually got enough electoral votes to become president, even though he actually lost the election, at least the popular vote. And the rhetoric has been very, very nativist. And the nativist groups have been encouraged, all sorts of nativist groups. But like all nativist politicians, he didn't govern. And particularly in the past year with COVID, where basically he just walked away from COVID, said it was a hoax, take your masks off. We are now approaching 400,000 deaths. Hospitals are over capacity. Hospitals have had to rent portable refrigerated trucks to put the bodies in. The morgues are filled. It's raging out of control. We have no vaccine rollout program. That's a mess because he he had no interest in governing. He hasn't governed. And as a result, our country is crumbling. People are dying. And his response was to urge his nativist followers to occupy the national capital. And we saw the nativist symbolism there. Confederate flags were flying inside the capital. During the Civil War, Confederate flags never even got close to the nation's capital. Now, thanks to this latest nativist government, there were Confederate flags throughout the capital. And these, those are the flags of slavery. There were gallows set up with ropes, and that reminds us of the good old lynching mobs. And lynching mobs, by the way, were active here in California during the gold rush. And, of course, you may have seen this character with a Viking helmet. Viking helmet. A lot of people, why would a guy be wearing a Viking helmet? He's going back to the white Anglo-Saxonist basic national myth that the only good Americans are descended from the Nordic and Germanic races. It was a horrible, horrible demonstration to me of the persistence of this white Anglo-Saxonist nativist movement. Will it happen again? Well, the general trend has been every 20 years, the nativists were able to convince a significant number of people that they're threatened by all these foreigners. They win the election, but they can't govern. And sooner or later, their government just crashes and burns. We have just seen it. The nativist president was impeached for the second time. Will this happen again? People have asked me. Well, let's look at what happened in California. Nativist Pete Wilson got his proposal 187. Latinos were under the microscope. I was there. I remember that night. And by the way, Proposition 187 passed with about a two-thirds majority, a very big majority of the largely uh, white voter, but it kicked our butts, so to speak. It, it did one thing that I, I had not been able to do as a Chicano activist in the Bay Area since the 60s, which was to get particularly immigrants off the fence to become U.S. citizens and register and vote because their livelihood, their children's future hung in the balance. And to this day, as, as I mentioned, there is not one Republican that's elected to a statewide office. Oh, there are people that tried who parrot the nativist rhetoric here in California, but the demographics, Latinos are 40% of the state, which by the way, makes California better than ever. But that's another podcast. We'll get into that. So the U.S. continues to change. And by in about another 20 years, actually, there will be no quite non-Hispanic majority. Everybody will be a plurality. Today in California, 62% of the population is what we used to call minority. Only when we're 62%, we're really not a minority. In fact, that's close to being a super majority, but we know what they mean. Oh, you're not Nordic. You're not Nordic enough or whatever. And you know, the state keeps functioning quite well. 
the same trends are happening nationally. This may be the last time. I hope that the nativists, white Anglo-Saxon nativists, are able to influence the country. There may be one more gasp. Do the data, do the math, about 20 years, by about 2040. Let's see. It depends on how well people organize. The surprise within this uh, upsurge of nativist movements was that Georgia elected two Democratic senators. What a surprise. That suddenly changed the complexion of what President Biden can do. When people ask me, so what can we do to fight this? I tell people it's really simple what we have to do, what we did here in California after 1994. If you're eligible, register. And once you're registered, vote. And if for some reason you are not eligible to register, find a friend who is eligible, but who has not registered. Take that friend by the hand to the registrar's office. Make sure that friend registers. Make sure that friend votes. The vote is what made the difference. In Georgia, just a few thousand votes, I believe the number was 11,000 votes or something, made the difference between a second Trump term or a Biden-Kamala Harris term. Every vote counts. Every vote is important. That's why some states try so hard to suppress the vote, because that is the power that drives the political decisions. Will our children, will our grandchildren have opportunities in front of them? Will they be able to go to school? Can we live in peace without fear of virulent, raging Anglo-Saxonist mob breaking into houses, schools, the state house next week, crashing into Biden's inauguration, the death threats that have been flowing around? Or will we all live in peace? It depends if we get out the vote. That should be the epiphany from January 6th, Dia de los Reyes Magos. We have a future in front of us. It's ours to roll up our sleeves, register a vote, and make it happen. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to this special episode, and please remember to subscribe if you haven't done so. Our executive producers are Adriana Valdez and Seira Santiso Greenwood. Also on our writing team is Brandy Lopez. Editing was provided by Elias Rodriguez, and music this week was provided by Mariachi de Uclatlan. Tune in for the next episode as we delve further into topics of Latino culture, gente, and health. Everybody, everybody, everybody.